our subject this morning is Christian care during sexual difficulties, and I'm not sure if there is a broader subject to address with as extensive a range of potential difficulties. So because of that, and out of a desire to work toward a perspective that will bring healing and perspective to as many of these difficulties as possible, as possible I'm going to try to address uh, the best I can the most fundamental aspects of human sexuality and its connection to our souls. From there, I think that we'll be able to at least chart a course to begin addressing all of the various difficulties and complications that we have as humans with sexuality. So we have to start a bit ahead of the reading that we had today. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6 verses, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 27. That's where it says that God is speaking to himself, and he says, let us make man in our own image, and he makes male and female. So this overviews humanity's creation, and I, and I want to make a few observations of these two verses. Um, first of all, they reflect that both God and humanity are both one and multiple at the same time. God is an us, but God is also singular. Man, meaning humanity, is, is one, but it's also two, male and female. So made in God's image, man and woman, and as we'll see, especially in the one flesh relationship that comes up in chapter 2, they reflect the perfect union that God shares within himself. And while it's not developed extensively in chapter 1 of Genesis, we know from later Revelation that the, that the creator of chapter 1 and the spirit of chapter 1 and the word of chapter 1 are indeed the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the first mention of human sexuality in the Bible is indeed chapter 2 of Genesis, what Lawrence read this morning. God has created man, and he is alone. He is in need of a helper. Now the text doesn't say that Adam feels lonely, and it doesn't say that he's overwhelmed with all the work that he's got to do without any help. The text just says that God said Adam was alone, which we all know is not an ideal state. It's not good for us to be isolated. It's not good for us to have a lot of work to do and no one to help us. However, when we read of Adam's response after God brings woman to him, we can conclude a few things, especially that, that Adam had a, a, a significant expression of relief and of joy for finally being rescued from that previous condition of being alone and overwhelmed. So however we describe Adam's emotional state, the introduction of woman into his life brought relief and joy. So much so that humankind's first recorded speech in the Bible is a song of declaration and praise and joy. Gratitude and joy filled his heart, and he expressed it in song, and I think it's safe to say that he felt that his soul was full. The story and the song also reveal a few more things. We see that woman provided a sense of complementary completeness to Adam. She was like him in contrast to the animals that he had just spent all that time naming, but she was also different from him. She was taken from man, but she was different from man. 
From earlier in the story, we know that male and female reflect God's image, and that without female, humanity expressed just in male was incomplete. Just as female without male would be incomplete. Now, also, Adam's initial experience of woman was not a conversation with her, but a visual experience. So he could see that she was like him, but also different from him. And he knew that his search was over. He would not be alone. He would not be overwhelmed with all of this work. He would not be incomplete. Through woman, God brought relief to Adam's soul. And the scriptures say that this was a very good thing. A very good thing. Verse 24 is a pause in the story, and the author inserts some perspective that he's wanting to make sure that we catch as we read through this. The formation of woman brought humanity's creation to its pinnacle, the image-bearing, one-flesh experience. It also set in place a perpetual activity. Man and woman becoming one flesh would produce children who would grow and continue to do the same. They would fulfill the obligation that God had given them to to multiply and fill the earth. They are bearing God's image in their full union with each other in that one flesh relationship. And in that one flesh relationship, they bring life to the earth just as God brought life to the earth. And then verse 25 concludes the narrative of God creating man and woman as husband and wife who are experiencing companionship, a shared calling, nakedness, and the one flesh experience without any shame. Their souls together are full. Now from here we see the context for human, full-souled, one flesh experiences. Man and woman as husband and wife, full of joy and fulfillment that is ultimately expressed in songs of of gratitude and worship to God who created them as his pinnacle of his creative works. It is life-giving for the husband, it is life-giving for the wife, and it produces life for future generations. Now, something bad happened. The serpent comes along and introduced doubt into the minds of the the woman and the man, doubt about the veracity and goodness of God. To this point, they had worshipped God and dwelt with him with full souls. The serpent draws them to disbelieve the goodness of God and the goodness of God's creation, He he moved them to disobey God in disbelief. And in that disbelief, they ruptured and corrupted their souls, which brought shame and guilt and fear into their experience. And unable to deal with their own shame internally, they attempted to cover their feelings of shame by sewing leaves together and covering their own nakedness and then hiding from God. Well, that didn't work. And they lost, as human beings, as husband and wife, the innocence. They now had knowledge of evil, and that knowledge of evil forced them to cover the very means through which the one flesh relationship was experienced. 
that which reflected the image-bearing, full-souled worship of God and was the means through which life would be perpetuated was now something that needed to be hidden. It needed to be covered because it produced death in them. Now, why was the realization of nakedness the first expression of their knowledge of evil and the first expression of their experience of death? It seems that the full-souled and life-giving one-flesh experience between a husband and a wife as the ultimate expression of imaging and reflecting God became just the opposite when belief in God and His goodness was rejected. No longer did their relationship, ultimately expressed in one flesh union, image God and produce worship. Rather, it now produced shame and guilt and fear. Now, God doesn't leave humanity here hopeless. He sees their efforts to cover their own shame and nakedness and he comes to the rescue. They hid themselves and they covered themselves, but God comes and provides for them a covering made out of animal skins. He comes back into their presence. They're covered by what he covers them with, and that removes their shame. They're now able to be in God's presence restoring their ability to image God and and worship Him through their one-flesh relationship that they're no longer feeling ashamed about. But then He also prompts, so He removes the shame, and He he removes their their vulnerability and their shame with each other. But He also promises that someday, women will give birth to a child, the product of the image-bearing, one-flesh, husband-wife relationship, who will not only be life himself, but will bring about the victory of life over death through the defeat of the serpent who brought death in the first place. So it's here that we see several things uh, emerge as necessary um, for there to be an honest and true and full-souled experience of the one flesh relationship for human beings. They are prerequisites. First, there must be an, an, intention, an intentional and active belief in God and His goodness that leads to a gratitude for and worship of God. So this we see here that, that one flesh relationships are not just fleshly. It's not just the physical things that are going on. One flesh relationships are spiritual. And they're energized by God through the souls of people. Second, to believe and worship God and His goodness is to hold to the order that He created for one flesh relationships. God honoring one flesh relationships are life-giving to the husband and wife, life-giving to future generations, and expressions of worship of God as reflections of His image united as complementary persons, man and woman as husband and wife. Third, while consent was assumed in the giving of one's 
yourself to another in covenantal marriage as husband and wife, the act of willingly uncovering oneself provides an additional barrier to one flesh experience and increasingly reinforces the need for covenant and consent. Now, in sin, human flesh relationships became distorted, and the Old Testament really continues that story. It records humanity's experience in its one flesh relationships. We see that throughout Scripture, they are pursued for the fleshly experience alone, void of honoring or reflecting God's image as husband and wife. Now, there are examples of that, but you see an abundant example of that relationship, that experience being distorted. Rape, polygamy, concubinage, fornication, homosexuality, and prostitution are widespread throughout the stories in the Old Testament. Offspring bring death rather than life. Barrenness seems common. When the one flesh experience moves from the purpose of imaging God to the human pursuit of physical pleasure alone, the one flesh experience is corrupt and distorted, and it does not bring fullness to our souls. It brings death to our souls. However, in the midst of the Old Testament's record of mostly bad examples, the books of Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and the wisdom literature direct readers to lives where they can experience one flesh relationships that are indeed reflections of the image-bearing intent that God had to produce wonderful, worshipful declarations and songs, which you see throughout the, oh, the Song of Solomon. It was, the entire book is a song and the declarations of the book of Ecclesiastes. These are signs then, and they are pressing for human beings to have full souls, healthy souls, which is what this entire series has been about, the care of our souls. As we move on to the New Testament, Christ's promise of life through faith in Him profoundly reshapes the one flesh relationship. As we read in Ephesians 5, we see that, that Christ completely enhances that relationship. Now, not only does it continue to image God in the union of husband and wife, which we've seen throughout all of Scripture, as we've described, and, and, and Christ brings an enhancement of that, that reflection because of, of the ability that the gospel has to cleanse us from guilt and shame and fear and to move us into to beauty in terms of how that passage describes it. But it also now gives us something new. Christ has done something new with marriage. It now images Christ's union with the church through the Holy Spirit. And this is a profound, uh, as Paul said, it's a profound mystery, and it's a profound change. So I want to take a look at this for a moment. The new image that marriage is intended to reflect is the union of Christ and his people. The union of Christ and his people is established through the Holy Spirit, which was given to people. He was placed inside of us upon belief, 
upon belief in the gospel. And the scriptures teach that this is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it when we get to the kingdom. So this, this Holy Spirit living in us, in our, in our physical bodies, is a reality. It has been established. It has been completed. We are in permanent union with Christ through that Holy Spirit. The one flesh relationship between husband and wife reflects that union that we have with Jesus Christ. Every single individual that has believed the gospel. So marriage then becomes a temporal reflection of the greater eternal truth, Christ's unity with the church. As Jesus taught, marriage is going to go away in the kingdom. But Christ's union with his people will never go away. And since Christ is God and the head of the church, he is in a place of authority, which is a place of power. And he is in a place of service. Christ came to serve us. And serve the Lord God, obviously. With the purpose of making his people beautiful, radiant, and free. The experience of what it means to have a full soul. Unlike the human Christian husband, Christ is perfect in his pursuit. He is perfect in his care. And he is perfect in his love. Christ never fails. Christ never fails. And because of that, the sense of union, this is a really important point that Paul's trying to make here in Ephesians 5. Because of that, the sense of union that we can experience through the Spirit that indwells us and unites us to Christ has the greater potential to fill us with what we pursue in our one flesh human relationships. What is it that we pursue in our one flesh relationships? To love, to be loved, to touch and to be touched, to care and to be cared for, and to be free, which is an experience of conscience and mind, and to contribute to the freedom of mind in others to experience beauty, power, and honor. In, in each of these things, Christ promises through a relationship with himself an experience greater, greater than what we will ever experience in our one flesh relationships, even those between Christian husbands and Christian wives. One flesh marriage relationships are, are supposed to reflect and image something every individual, every individual Christian already has through Christ in fullness. You see, we underestimate and neglect to put our faith in the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He is able to affect our bodies, affect our minds, affect our emotions. But if we don't believe that, we won't pursue that. Christ has promised to deliver through the Spirit 
what we seek in our efforts to form one flesh relationships. Now, to more fully understand this, we need to reflect on on the story of Jesus and the, the woman at the well. The woman at the well, she came to draw water to appease her own thirst, to quench her own thirst, and to quench the thirst of others that she was drawing water for. Now, Jesus, knowing her life, Jesus, knowing her heart, brings up the subject of her husband, prompting her to say that she wasn't married. To which Jesus replies, you have had five husbands. You, you're speaking the truth, but you have had five husbands. Implying that she has experienced the one flesh relationship with five men who were not her husbands. And in bringing this up, Jesus uses the metaphor of quenching thirst to address not her actual thirst for a drink of water, but her thirst for love and and intimacy and care and touch and union and freedom, these things that we so often pursue one flesh relationships for, but often come away unfulfilled, empty, and thirsty even in those of us who have biblical one-flesh relationships with a Christian spouse. Now, obviously, uh, Jesus was not proposing to her. But the imagery is intentional. Throughout the Old Testament, we see men coming to wells and they meet their wives. So he's not proposing, but in a way, we, we, we pull the imagery from those scenes from other stories in the Old Testament, and we see this here, and, and Jesus really is inviting her uh, into union with him in a completely different way than she would suspect. Jesus, in the boldness of revealing that he already knew all she ever did, those are her words, she runs back to town and she says, I have... I have run across the man who has told me everything I have ever done. Which is basically saying he he knows my past, he knows my reputation, I have no secrets with him. But then he also proclaimed to her that he was able to satisfy what she was always looking for. And he wasn't saying which seems to so often occur, especially in conservative evangelical circles, that all she needed to do was find a good Christian man. It's not what he was saying at all. He was saying, you need to enter into union with me through faith in me, and I will satisfy your thirst. So what are some of the typical sexual difficulties we have, and how does this affect, and how does this teaching about Jesus and Jesus' teaching How does this help us? How does this help us? Obviously, we can't go into details about very many things, not only for time purpose, but for appropriateness. But I think there's some big ideas that we can look at. As singles, who do not have a righteous way of engaging in one flesh relationships, unless they obviously get married, the temptation to fulfill the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh pulls us as single people into pornography and masturbation and fornication, which possibly provides short bursts of physical pleasure, 
But begin in the beginning immediately darken our consciences and our bodies as single people, often leading to depression and addiction. Additionally, as singles, we can also succumb to the lie that since we're not married, we're somehow less capable than married people to experience a full soul. Now, we don't have to be single to experience challenges in our one flesh relationships. Married people, obviously, can be just as broken in their one flesh experiences as single people. We are all human beings, and we are all broken, and we are all broken in our one flesh experiences. Married people who are in the context of one flesh relationships all recognize that the physical aspect of, of one flesh experience is far less consequential than the minds and the spirits of the people involved. Married people are also tempted and engage in pornography and masturbation and adultery and other forms of immorality while pursuing an experience that they are not getting from their spouse. They will not get what they're looking for through any of those alternative outlets and they only make their experiences of any one flesh relationship worse and possibly cause irreparable harm to themselves and to others. See, if Christ is not at the center, providing healing in not only our, our fleshly bodies, but also in our minds and our souls, the one flesh relationship will bring death and destruction to us. And, single or married, there are many of us who have endured forced, and violent one flesh experiences. Obviously, these are profoundly damaging and can produce significant physical and psychological damage that, that could last for decades, if not for the rest of our lives. Again, we don't have the, the time uh, to get into all of the details about how those things can be pursued, but I, I want to just mention a few things about where we can start to begin experiencing healing uh, and overcoming so that we can have full souls in our walk in Christ as human beings, whether we're single or whether we're married. First, the most important sexual organ is our brain. How we think, fantasize, obsess, form expectations, relive memories, form images, and all of the other things that we do with our minds in regard to sexuality, these, this has the most effect on how we pursue and engage in our one flesh relationships. It is in our minds that we listen to and believe the deceitful desires of the flesh, a phrase that the New Testament uses to describe these, these longings that we have, and we often don't recognize that they are telling us lies. They are strong feelings of sexual passion, which is literally the term suffering, so sexual suffering. And they tell us to, that pers pursuing the fulfillment of those passions will relieve us from the suffering, will bring us life instead of death, will bring us a fullness of soul rather than an emptiness. But as we know, pursuing and fulfilling those deceitful desires, and the, the challenge with deceitful desires, because they're deceitful, 
is is we don't know we're being lied to. Our feelings are so strong, and all of the messages that we get from within ourselves and from the outside world affirm those lies, those lies, those deceits quite often. That's why one of the most important things that we can do is renew our minds and develop um, a biblical perspective of human sexuality, a Christ perspective of human sexuality, to develop the values and the truths so that we're able to identify and counteract those lies, which is the first step to not acting in accordance to them. We hear all kinds of images about sex from the world and through media and other people. And most of us, unfortunately, well, all of us, all of us, are the world is trying to disciple us in its understanding of sexuality. We have to rededicate and re-educate ourselves as disciples of Jesus. And we've got to start with the renewal of the mind. And these, these, these values, these imaginations, as some in the Song of Solomon is intended to create um, images in our mind, biblical images about what human sexuality should look and feel like. So meditating and studying and understanding these texts are quite important. Also, many of us are stuck in habits of mind and body that have risen to the addiction level and we're having trouble freeing ourselves from these addictions. As I mentioned before, there are many of us who are suffering from sexual wounds inflicted upon us. This is an additional thing. These and other kinds of difficulties, they're going to require help. Definitely from the church, because we need, the, we need support from the church. The Spirit, again, is working through the church. He's using the Holy Spirit and dwelling in others to minister to us as we experience the Holy Spirit. And this, there's this feeding that goes on through the Word, through our meditations on Scripture, and through the people that are also uh, have the Spirit. And so we are being fed and strengthened. So we need the church to help us through these things. That's how God has created us as people. See, we, we're not only one with Christ, we're also one with each other. That's a, that is a profound truth. It's a profound truth. So we need each other. And quite possibly, some of us might need help from professionals that have dealt with decades-long addictions at times. And there are some physiological uh, aspects of that that professionals are trained in. What I would do is, if you're in one of these places where you feel stuck, where you feel stuck in, in being in enslaving, um, soul-emptying contexts or experiences or memories, where you feel like there's work to do to experience a full soul, contact one, your house church leaders. Contact an elder. Contact one of the wives of the elders. Talk to somebody on the ministry team. Start the process of of entering into the work of the Holy Spirit to bring wholeness and fullness to your soul. These suggestions, strengthening your mind and, and engaging and talking to somebody else to start getting help, they're going to require faith, and from that faith it's going to require courage. 
if you don't believe that Jesus is the ultimate lover, 100% faithful to draw near to you, to quench your thirst, to heal you from your own sin and from the sins of others, and to help you overcome guilt and shame, then you're not going to be able to make that step forward. That's what Jesus has promised to be. And whether you're single or whether you're married, if, you had any, if you've made any pursuit or effort to bring fulfillment into your life through some form of one flesh relationship, you know, if you're honest with yourself, that all of those experiences haven't produced in you a full soul all of the time. There is brokenness everywhere in all of us. And we all are looking for an experience that only Jesus can provide. We are trying to quench a thirst that only He can quench. If we don't look towards Christ to quench that thirst, then we're going to continue to just be like man and woman that, that got some fig leaves and, to try, and tried to cover their shame and then hid, hiding from each other and hiding from God. Just like with the woman at the well, Jesus wants to know you. In fact, Jesus already does. What Jesus wants is for you to come to him to quench that thirst and to stop drinking from other wells. The wells that drain your springs rather than abundantly overfill them. Proverbs chapter 5 says, Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Well, when we give our hearts to things other than Jesus Christ, they just keep draining that well. Jesus wants to fill it up, and he wants to overwhelmingly fill it up and provide the fullness of soul and quench that thirst. He wants you to believe that he will cover your shame, just like God did in providing animal skins for man and woman, and what Jesus overwhelmingly did in his death, putting sin, putting death to death, just like the songs said that we sang this morning. And he wants to put that guilt, he wants to put that shame, he wants to put that fear away. He wants to bring you out of hiding. And in the resurrection of his life, he promises the resurrection of our life, which is increasingly bringing us into an experience of a reality that those of us in Christ already have. The experience of being one with Christ, the experience of being able to feel the fullness of soul that he promises. Let me pray. Lord God, these words are incredible. Your statements and claims are incredible. We know the allure of one flesh relationships and the power that they have. And to know that what you will provide through your Holy Spirit through faith in you, uh, to be beyond those things, those experiences, is just truly an incredible statement. So, Lord God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would strengthen our courage to pursue you, to pursue wherever we're at, wherever we're at in our walk, Lord God, wherever we're at in our journey, we, we ask that you'd strengthen our faith, that we could enter into your presence more fully and find healing uh, from our past and, and strengthening for our future that we would have full souls. In your son's name we pray. Amen.